for me, AI gives me some creative ability or at least the ability to interact with creative people in a better way because I can just in my words say, here's what I'm thinking. Can you give me some concepts? And then I can take that to designers and say, here's roughly what I'm envisioning. So I think that when you look at it as truly a way to augment human creativity, human innovation, that's where you see it really shine as a valuable tool. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 52 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, here with special guest host, Kathy McPhillips, our chief growth officer. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Well, thank you so much. I think Big this shoes is, to fill. Big so shoes this to is fill. your first time on the show, right? Like you and I do the intraday AI class all the time together, but this is your first time on the podcast, right? It is. So Kathy, behind the scenes, brings the podcast to life every week. She is our... Uh, our, our person that is in Descript every week, taking our transcripts, summarizing transcripts, cutting up videos for YouTube, getting the podcast posted. So if you're a regular listener, you have Kathy to thank for your weekly episode of Marketing Ash Show. It wouldn't happen without her. Um, but today, I'll explain the format in a moment. First, I want to recognize our sponsor. So Brand Ops is our sponsor of, of this episode. Uh, did you know brand health, media monitoring, social listening, competitive intelligence, share of voice, and review tracking could all be done with the same tool? When we sat down with the Brand Ops team, it was remarkable to see what one AI-based platform could do. Having a complete view of brand marketing performance and instantly knowing where to focus to increase impact helps businesses unlock faster growth. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show to learn more and see brand ops in action. Okay. Thank you. Brand ops. And when I saw that demo. I was like, we need all these things. It was so good. <laughs> so good. So yeah, definitely check out brand ops and, and so now to kind of this special edition. So if you, if you're a regular listener, you know, uh, Mike and I are traveling in, I, I'm in, I'm doing some European travel. Uh, Mike is in South America, I believe. So we have, we have a number of talks on this international speaking tour going on. And rather than just not having a show for a couple of weeks, we thought, all right, what are some really valuable practical things that we could do that would be really interesting to our audience? And so the one that immediately jumped to mind for me is every few weeks since November of 2021, I've been teaching an intro to AI for marketers class via Zoom. It's a free class. Kathy uh, moderates that for us. And at the end of every class, we do about 30 minute presentation. I then spend 30 minutes answering questions that Kathy curates. So we thought we have hundreds of unanswered questions throughout this series. We've had over 11,000 people register for the Intro to AI class. If you've never taken it, you're welcome to jump in and sign up. Again, it's on our site. Every few weeks, it's, it's ongoing. So, and it's a live thing. We adapt it each, each time based on you know, what's going on. So hundreds of unanswered questions. And we thought, well, what better special edition episode? Like, let's answer the frequently asked questions. So I threw it to the team and I said, let's figure out, let's not curate this human, like let's use some AI. So Kathy, walk us through how this all played out. Like how have we decided on the questions we're going to answer today? Okay. 
So we started with, we've had seven intro classes since January. We thought the questions from this year are going to be the most relevant. There were some last year that were outdated. So we just wanted to make sure that they were comprehensive of, you know, what people were asking today. So I took all the questions through the chat and through the Q&A box, and it was 147 questions. And I kept in the ones that were like, what are tools I should use? There were a lot of duplicates. And I thought, you know, the AI needs to see that this question was asked numerous times. So I kept them all in there and I knew what was going to happen. But the first thing I did was I put all 147 of them in chat GPT and it was like too, too much, too much information. So I knew I had to chunk it up. So I did um, batches of 30 to 40 questions, cut and paste them in the chat GPT. And I said, my prompt was, Consolidate these questions into 10 questions that cover all the main topics discussed in the following questions. I'm preparing a podcast interview for our CEO and would like to focus on specific questions from our customers. So I did that five times, four times, whatever it was. And it gave me those batches. And then I took those 40 questions that remained and I said, could you please take your generated responses? I I always say please. which (laughs) I've actually heard that that helps. Because it was nicer. Yeah. Yeah. So could you please take your generated responses from each batch to come up with 10 to 15 questions, consolidating all of your numbered responses to provide me with a podcast brief where I can interview our CEO, Paul Reitzer, on these customer questions. Our goal is to answer these questions and provide Paul's expert point of view and guidance. So it got it down to 15 questions. And then I was like, okay, the next thing I need to do is I need to go and order them so that we're going through this. We're not asking old questions, having this, you know, disconnect in the, you know. So then I said, would you change the flow of the above questions if we want the questions to seamlessly segue from one topic to the next? So we read them all and we went through them. We just went through them before we got on today. And what we realized is, as you repeat numerous times, the human is still very much needed. There were some questions that didn't make sense, some that people weren't asking. Yeah, like too complicated in some cases, like there's no reason to go into that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so we removed some duplication, added in some context and flipped the order, uh, readjusted some of the questions. Um, like I said, so I think we're in a good place now to, to get through some of these. Yeah. And so we'll share those prompts in the show notes. So if you want to see what Kathy was just kind of walking through, we'll put those in. So it was just a cool thought experiment. I actually did a event recently with Yext, um, with Christian Ward, their CIO, and he did something similar with theirs where they kind of categorized them. So again, like segmentation, categorization, summarization. These are really interesting use cases that a lot of people aren't thinking about with, you know, what can be a free version of ChatGPT. Um, so yeah, just kind of cool. And so with that, Kathy, let's go ahead and get into the 15 questions. So we have 15 questions, again, FAQs from our Intro to AI for Marketers class. Um, and hopefully you find a lot of value in these. Let's go. All right. Number one. How do you define generative AI in the context, or how do you define generative in the context of AI, and how might it be applied in various marketing disciplines, such as marketing, design, or podcasting? Yeah, so certainly ChatGPT ushered in this generative AI era. It wasn't, you know, the term wasn't invented when ChatGPT came out, but I think probably going back to Dolly 2 in spring of 2022 is when generative AI really started being talked about as a phrase to define this category. And so the simplest way to think about it is the generation of any form of content, like multimedia content. So the five core uses that we talk about are language, image, video, audio, and code. So as marketers and in all cross discipline, all the different areas of marketing, communications, advertising, um, analytics, social media, email, wherever you're using AI, 
generative AI is the ability to generate content um, by the machine. Easy enough. Yeah. Yep. We'll keep these concise. We're going to try and <laughs> get these at a high level. Okay. Number two, how can marketers balance the in integration of AI in their strategies while maintaining the human touch and creativity in their campaigns? Yeah, we really see AI as an amplification tool, an augmentation tool for humans. I have found GPT-4 in particular to be exceptional as a strategy assistant. So I, I don't use um, AI writing tools to write, oddly enough. Uh, I like writing. I like thinking. I, that's how I do my thinking is by writing. And so I don't really need AI there, but I love it as a strategy tool, you know, building out personas, thinking through business plans, to-do lists. And so for me, a lot of the way we think about AI and a lot of the way we teach it is it enhances human creativity. You know, it really does take you to different realms and gives you the possibility. One of the things I love about it is I have no creative ability outside of writing. Like I'm not a designer. I'm not a videographer. And I have, I have always struggled to even work with graphic designers because I, I can't explain what's in my head. It's like, I, I'll know it if I see it. The, anyone in the agency world knows that like client reaction of, yeah, this isn't it. Well, what do you want? I don't know. I'll know it when I see it. That's how I work with artistic and people, including my wife, who's a painting major. And she has all these amazing ideas. And it's like, I draw it for me. Like I can't visualize it. And so for me, AI gives me some creative ability or at least the ability to interact with creative people in a better way, because I can just in my words say, here's what I'm thinking. Can you give me some concepts? And then I can take that to designers and say, here's roughly what I'm envisioning. So I think that, you know, when you look at it as, truly a way to augment human you know, creativity, uh, human innovation, that that's where you see it really shine as a valuable tool. And that's one thing you and I have talked about when I was working with J.K. Kalinowski, you know, me being able to get out of my head when I'm, what I'm envisioning and giving that to him instead of me trying to explain it and going round and round, like what a great, what a great tool to be able to help us do things like that. For sure. He's even talked about using it to help have him design or not design some things, but brainstorm yep. and just get, if he's stuck on something how can you know, what can um what will that give him that he can then take and make make his own yeah even the experts like the design experts we all suffer from that blank page syndrome where you're just like you're just staring at the page and you just can't get the first ideas out so using it as an assistant and ideation tool is a, a great way to think about these tools do you think human creativity will evolve now yeah, I think we're already seeing it, certainly. I think, you know, people who are professionals, who are professional designers, professional writers, videographers are, when they embrace this technology, are realizing they can do incredible things with it. And then people like me who don't really have those abilities are realizing like, oh, I, I can actually create concepts or storyboard things that previously I would have had to use an outside person for. Um, so, yeah, I think it's already evolving. Some people are more accepting of that than others, certainly mm -hmm. in different disciplines. Okay. Number three, as AI no. continues to improve, how can writers maintain their value in a world where AI is getting better at creating content? Yeah. So again, I think this goes to using it as an assistant and an augmentation tool, um, but also realizing that I think more human content wins in the end. So we've, I've written about this. We've talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast. This, the authentic human content that's, that, that is difficult to fake, it, I think, becomes more valuable. So in-person events, um, podcasts, editorials with opinion pieces, interviews with people, 
um, live events, you know, in person. Those are the kinds of things I think people will come to crave when AI generated content is a commodity, which it basically already is. We can all write the listicles, the how-tos, any brand can have anybody go in and generate that stuff. I think people are going to crave actual human content, human creativity, human imagination. Now it's going to be a blended thing. Um, you know, AI is going to be assisting in those areas in some ways, but I've found personally, uh, lately, I think people just want to be back together. They want to see someone answer something unscripted. They just want to hear, um, you know, people's thoughts and opinions and points of view. And I see that kind of content becoming more valued and that carries over into the art world. You know, I think that at some point while AI art is interesting, People are still going to want to see humans create things and they want to hear music that comes from people's soul and their own experiences. And, you know, I just, I feel like they're at some point going to become a bit of a, I don't know about a backlash to AI generated stuff, but I just don't think it'll carry the same value as human generated content. I was talking the other day with someone about e-greeting cards. Yeah. Remember when that was a thing? Yep. And like everyone's like, I don't want an email of a card. Doesn't <laughs> feel natural. Doesn't like, feel Authentic. Right. Yeah. Okay, number four, given the rapid pace of change in marketing technology, what advice would you offer to businesses trying to navigate the influx of AI tools in the market and how can they build a coherent tech stack? I'll keep this one really simple. I would start with your existing tech stack. So all the major technology companies, you know, if I think on the design side, Adobe, I think on the CRM side, HubSpot, Salesforce, I think about, uh, you know, the work productivity tools like Office, you know, Microsoft 365, Google Workspace, they're all infusing these generative AI capabilities right into the platforms. So your first point uh, is going to be looking at your existing tech stack and saying what smarter tools exist within these platforms right now or in the very near future and that we should be infusing into our workflows. And then you can go out and start really evaluating some of these other, you know, more startup type companies that are getting some VC funding and starting to build smarter solutions. But I would always probably start with your core tech stack and see if the answer already lives within software your team is familiar with. And is that like a self-serve thing? You like just go and see what you're missing out on or is there like CS teams in place or does it really depend on the size of the organization? Probably or just like depends. questions should, should, should they be asking? Yeah, I think it just depends on which companies you're working with and how far along they are in their AI product roadmap and how aware their customer success teams are that the technology is there. What we've seen a lot of is these SaaS companies are trying to kind of play catch up and build generative AI capabilities into it. And much of their marketing and sales teams don't even understand AI. So they have a hard time explaining it, messaging it. So in some cases you may have to be proactive and go to, you know, your CRM company or your email marketing company or social media, you know, management tool company and say, what are you doing with AI? Like if they haven't been very public about it, what are you doing anything? Do you have any features in beta that we could get involved with testing? Um, are there options, you know, even if it involves upgrading your package and, you know, increasing what you're spending each month to have access to these kinds of tools? I, you know, it's not going to be much longer that these companies can exist without being extremely public about their AI plans. So I don't think you'll have to search very hard in the months ahead because these SaaS companies can be obsoleted very quickly if they don't build smarter solutions that drive efficiency and enhance creativity for their users. Right. Or going to them and saying, do you, you know, we're trying to accomplish this. Here's our goals. Do you have anything yeah. to help us? Yeah, for sure. Not, we have to look elsewhere. 
yeah, we're we're aware AI exists. We hear it can drive efficiencies. You know, how can you help us do that? Cool. Um, number five, as more and more AI-based companies emerge, how can marketers discern which ones to invest in for their company's specific needs? Yeah, this can get tricky because there are literally thousands of these generative AI startups, and many of them are offering really interesting technologies and solutions. Many of them have zero customer success teams. They don't have onboarding materials. They have no partner programs with vendors that are trained to help implement these tools. So you really... You know, the, the way to think about AI is it's just smarter technology. You still have to critically assess the companies, the products you're buying, the impact it's going to have on your team. Do you need to train your team to use these tools? Do they have any knowledge base or customer success teams that can help you? Um, you could get in trouble just going and buying a bunch of AI startup tools that don't really work that well. And that's, again, why I tend to guide, start with the companies you trust that are building these tools that have the infrastructure to support your team, integrating them and getting your team onboarded and trained. Like I built my, my marketing agency that I sold in 2021 on the back of HubSpot. And, and we did it starting in 2007 when HubSpot was like a year old. But HubSpot very early on invested heavily in their customer success team, their partner program. And so I was willing to take a leap of faith with my agency and build around HubSpot because I believed in the company and the people and the infrastructure they were putting in place. Right now, a lot of these generative AI tools don't have any of that. And, and sometimes if you drill in a little bit, they don't even have a vision for it. They're just trying to scale as quick as they can and get some VC funding, and then they'll figure that stuff out later. So if you're in a bigger enterprise, you're probably not taking many risks with companies like that. You're, you're going to lean pretty heavily because you got to get through procurement and they're not going to let you like buy a lot of these little tools. So I, I think approaching this the way you always have, you know, be thorough in assessing these companies, think about the impact on your team, think about how it's going to fit into your tech stack and integrate. And then from there, you'll make sound decisions. And like anything, you wouldn't just buy a tech because it's cool and you right. like, you know, let you like with it, it has to fit into a business need and, a, and your goals. Yeah, you can demo it and experiment with it. Like that's the beauty of ChatGPT and Google Bard is like, it doesn't cost anything. Just go play around with it. Like that, that's fine. That's great. But can you scale ChatGPT in a fortune thousand company? No, like it's not, it's not set up that way yet. There's no enterprise features really. So that's what I mean by you can play around with this tech, but if you're going to truly pilot and scale it, you, you need to trust the vendors you're buying from. Right. But to that point though, if you're, if you're for an enterprise and you are just starting to get into this and tinker with some things, using ChatGPT on personal stuff and just seeing what it's capable of will really help benefit you understanding what could be bigger in the enterprise. Definitely help you make the business case internally. Sure. Yeah. Experimentation is critical. Um, yeah. Just don't, you don't want to bet your career on recommending a vendor that doesn't exist in six months because someone built a smarter version of their company overnight. Right. So kind of segueing, you know, from what you were saying about, you know, talking to procurement and other departments. How can marketing departments work collaboratively with IT, AI technology teams to leverage the AI capabilities? Yeah. So if, if you're in a big enterprise, certainly the sooner you collaborate, the better. In small to mid-sized businesses, IT may be an outsourced function. You may not even you know, talk to IT regularly or even know who your IT person is. So it really depends on the size of the organization that will kind of dictate this. There are many use cases where IT is going to have minimal to no involvement. So, you know, I've said it before, like if you just want to jump in and start getting an AI writing tool, you may not need a IT to do that. You know your own governance guidelines in your company. That may not be true for you. 
But I think that the more we work cross-discipline, we're going to need each other. And we often advise companies build an AI council, you know, a great way to think about AI moving forward and help build a roadmap and principles and policies is to bring cross-discipline people within the organization together and talk about the impact this is going to have. IT is certainly going to have their concerns around privacy, security, um, cybersecurity risks. And those are very valid, especially as you work on larger scale AI projects that require the, the access and use of data. So I think, you know, you know your organization and you need to really figure out the best way forward to involve people in and, and kind of get buy-in. The early pilot projects, sometimes it's just not going to be needed to be that complicated. But as you start to think about scaling this and driving digital transformation in your company, you're going to need your peers bought in and, and you know, the people across the dif different elements of the C-suite. Right. So this one, we, I seem to be, it comes up more and more lately. Uh, Every time we do this. <laughs> do marketers need to consider, do marketers need to consider plagiarism when using the AI writing tools? And do writing detection tools work? Yep. Very similar vein, these two questions. Plagiarism, not really an issue. I mean, realistically, if you generate something using an AI writing tool, it's not plagiarizing it. It's not copying and scraping content from somewhere. It's predicting words in a sentence. A large language model, it's basically what it does. It learns from a corpus of knowledge. Like imagine it ingesting Wikipedia and Reddit and CNN and you know, your corporate website and all of these different things, it consumes all this information and it learns how humans write and, and the frequency with which words appear near each other. So in the, I don't know if that's overly complicated. I'm trying to simplify this, but it's basically learning. And then it just predicts words when you ask it a question or give it a prompt. So it's not plagiarizing anything. It's, it's truly original content in that sense. It's synthesizing so, information the same way you or I would. This morning, you described that as you, you know, mm -hmm. I think that was a really good under, you know, that made us understand more about what this means. Like you are, if someone asks you to talk about a topic, right. you're going to read about the topic. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. So like the example I've often used is if, if I say to Kathy, can you go write me uh, an article about the 10 ways large language models are going to affect marketing and, and enterprises moving forward? Kathy's going to go and do research the way a human learned to do things. You go and Google the topic, you find a bunch of sources. You copy and paste stuff over, you read through it, you highlight, you boldface, like you do all this stuff to like learn. Then you synthesize that information and you write a brief that says the 10 ways large language models are going to transform marketing and enterprises. Now, sometimes within that, you may quote something, but generally speaking, you're going to take information, synthesize what you learn, and you're going to write about it. And so if Kathy walked in my office and said, okay, and I said, you got three minutes, like, give me this synopsis. She's just going to explain what she learned. She's not going to cite everything she says because it's just synthesized knowledge. That's how these things work. They go out, they learn a bunch of stuff way faster and at a much larger scale than the human mind is capable of. And then you ask it something and it synthesizes what it learns. It's not citing anything. It's not taking anything from any specific spot unless it's an actual quote or a statistic or something like that. It's synthesizing knowledge. And that's part of the thing like people just don't really realize that that's what it's doing. And that's the argument, honestly, for when all of this comes to legal cases about whether or not it's infringing copyrights and things like that, this is the argument that attorneys will make. How is this any different from a human synthesizing information? So there will be counterpoints, but this is basically the premise of, you know, it's just learning at a different scale than we're capable of as humans, but it's doing what we do basically. And, you know, if something is wrong or, you know, it's because it's taking the, it's 
get not guessing, but it's predicting the right answer based on the information that it has. Which Correct. Can, it, yeah, it doesn't actually, unlike us, it doesn't know people, places, things. It doesn't really, it's not very good at assessing its own output to say, is this factual? Because it doesn't really even know what facts are. It doesn't, doesn't know anything. It's just making so that's like the craziest thing is like you use gpt4 and it seems so intelligent so creative so you know advanced in its reasoning capability but when you step back you realize like it actually doesn't know anything it doesn't truly understand and have the context the way a human would it's just really good at synthesizing what a human or simulating what a human does to the point where it's it's extremely convincing to where you think it it talks like a human it does <laughs> when I was doing Macon, I was writing some Macon promotional copy and it said Macon Marketing AI Conference held in San Francisco. Yep. But if you look at where tech conferences are held, where marketing conferences are held, I mean, that's a pretty good assumption. That's where it's going to be. Right. So it thinks any AI conferences in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. And then the writing okay. detection tool you mentioned. Yeah. So quick there, they don't work. Just point blank. If you're, if you're, you know, your teachers at your kid's school are using AI detection tools, or if your company is using them in some way, they do not work. There is no path for them to work. Google, OpenAI, everyone has talked about this publicly. No one knows how to solve this. There's some theories that you're going to be able to watermark the content it outputs. There is no scientific proof or clear path right now to have AI detection tools work at scale because someone will just build an AI tool that remixes the output so the detection tool can't find it. We are entering a phase of AI versus AI. And at the end of the day, they don't work. It's just the simplest way to think about it. Okay. Number eight, how can someone verify the content that AI generates? So again, this kind of relates to the detection tool. Um, you don't know if it did, but I think this gets more into if it's stating facts, are they actually facts? And the honest answer right now is a human has to verify it. So. The way that this works, again, since it's just predicting words, the way that the language model companies like OpenAI and Google and Microsoft are trying to solve this is you give a prompt, the AI creates an output, writes an article, then another AI kind of think of it as like an AI search engine goes, finds sources that seem to verify what the AI wrote, and then it'll, it'll link in citations, quote unquote citations or resources that seem to verify where that content came from. So then then it'll give you the output and then it'll say, oh, this is this came from here. Well, it didn't actually come from there. So the way it's doing it is by trying to layer over a search engine in real time to do this. So Google Bard, again, if you haven't used it, bard.google.com, you can go try it right now. Theirs has search natively built in and in, in real time data. So you could ask it who's in the NBA finals or who is the top pick in the NFL draft this year. Um, or who's the president of the United States? Like it, it would know it because it's be able to search a real-time database. ChatGPT out of the box stopped training in 2021. It doesn't know anything beyond September of 2021. So the way they solve that is by doing a, a browser plugin that then adds real-time data to these outputs. So that's how they're trying to do it. It it's not incredibly accurate. So if the content you're creating, you you can't be wrong. You can't make errors in. So for example, just recently, we heard of the attorney who submitted a legal argument to a judge and had ChatGPT write it. And it made up all these citations and the lawyer didn't know ChatGPT makes stuff up. So he submitted this legal argument to the judge and got caught falsifying citations and had to go in front of the judge and admit that he didn't know ChatGPT made stuff up. 
So if you're working on something where you cannot make a mistake in names, places, facts, books, things like that, the human has to verify any, everything. And so oftentimes there's really no time saving from having AI do that because you have to spend as much time verifying everything it said. Yeah, it's a lot. People don't realize that. Like it's, again, so many people are just like experimenting with ChatGPT and they don't know the ins and outs of this. And that's a really important thing to know about these tools. And it's hit the masses. It's not just marketers or, you know, my dad, my 75 year old, oh, yeah. is like, what's this ChatGPT? I get texts from family all the time asking me about this stuff. <laughs> um, okay. Number nine, can AI replace or supplement roles like graphic designers? And how accessible are these AI tools for non-designers to create their own visuals? Yeah. So for me, I think the simplest way, and I'll keep this answer extremely concise, is they are super powerful assistants and co-pilots. So I, I think the best way to think about AI is a very powerful intern or assistant or in some cases, like data analytics, data analysis, it's going to be like a PhD level assistant. Like if you're going to be able to ask questions of your spreadsheets, you won't have to build pivot tables at a human. You can just ask it and tell it to build you visualizations. So I just think that there's certain knowledge tasks where it's, it is assisting you, but it's sometimes at a very high level. Right. So, you know, I, with the podcast, I'm using Canva to remove backgrounds from images. I'm making pretty basic images, but for us, that works for that particular need. For Descript, I'm using it to delete words, to edit the edit the video. So, you know, it's a nicer video, but there's things like, you know, you ask me about a speaker reel. I'm project managing, putting together a speaker reel for you, for you right now. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I won't pretend to do that. I'm not going to use an AI tool to help me do that because it's not going to give us the output that we want. So the professionals are still needed in, some, in most of those instances. And quite frankly, they don't want to be doing things like what I'm doing. They yeah. want, I mean, they want to be creative. They want to use their talents for much bigger things. So um, there is still a need for all of those pros and not just people like me. For sure. Okay. Number 10, what are the potential impacts and opportunities for agencies as AI technology advances and how can they adapt today to ensure they aren't left behind? Yeah. So again, if people don't know my background, I owned an agency for 16 years. And so I, you know, I think a lot about this side. I'm not involved with the agency anymore, so I don't spend every day of my life thinking about this. But I do see AI having a massive impact on agencies, both uh, the financial models. So if they're still charging billable hours, that gets very challenging when you can do things 10 times faster to how do you make enough money if you're doing things that efficiently. Um, the service mix uh, evolves their own. How do I build a smarter operational engine for my company using AI? There's lots of those in considerations. But I, so I think there's a lot of threats to agencies that don't quickly evolve and figure this stuff out. But the opportunity is ev literally every business in every industry across the world has to solve for AI. There are very few of them capable of doing that. So I think there's an, an enormous ecosystem to be built of agencies that develop specialties in advising and consulting on AI and then leading integration projects. So for example, every enterprise is going to have some form of a, a custom large language model that's trained on their proprietary data, their proprietary knowledge base that no one else is going to have access to that helps marketing, sales, service, all the different elements of the organization. Who do you go to for that kind of guidance? Do you want to figure out what language model to work with, which application company to work with, how to integrate it into your tech stack? So there's, I mean, there's going to be billion dollar consulting practices built just on 
advising on large language models and doing the integration work. So that's, if I was running an agency, that's what I would be thinking about is, yes, this is going to be disruptive. It might be a little painful for the next year or so, because it's going to cause some maybe uncomfortable changes in the organization. But if you look out ahead and say, but what are the big opportunities? There are massive way dwarfs. When I, when I saw the opportunity with HubSpot and sort of was the origin of that whole ecosystem, which I mean, HubSpot's a, what, I don't know, 25, $30 billion company. Their, their channel partner program at one point was making up 45% of that revenue. That was the thing we were the originator of. And I look back now and think this is 10 times that size, like a hundred times the size of the market potential that could occur in the services ecosystem. So, yeah, I mean, it's, in my opinion, it's a hard time to run an agency, but it's a, it's a phenomenal time if you have the vision to do, to do this, um, to integrate AI into your organization. Yeah. It's so much bigger than billable hours. Don't get me started on billable hours. (laughs) Okay. Test that real quick. (laughs) Number 11, in terms of language capabilities, how far has AI tools come and what can we expect moving forward? Yeah, I mean, in terms of how far they've come, just go use GPT for yourself. You'll you'll see. Like it is, I mean, I truly, there's almost daily, there's a use case for GPT four that I'm I'm in shock that it does it. Like I know how these things work. I know they are trained. I have been testing them since the beginning. And there's still times it'll do something and I'll sit back and try and figure out how in the world is it doing that? Like just as an example, if it's trained just to predict the next word, and it's trained on all the content on the internet. A lot of the content on the internet's terrible, poorly written, no vision for it, no, you know, solid tone, no good style, all kinds of grammatical errors. How does GPT-4 write almost perfectly and creatively? Like if it's just learned from the median of all of our best, all of the content on the internet, how did it all of a sudden become in the top, like 0.1% of its creative ability? I don't actually know the answer to that. I'm not sure that Microsoft and OpenAI know the answer to that. Like it just somehow does this and it is a bit magic. Like it's, it is certainly science, but it does seem to have some magical elements to it. Like I don't know how it does it sometimes. So I think it's come extremely far, but I also think this is it. Like this is just the beginning. This is the dumbest version of AI we're ever going to experience. And so it's fair to assume that every 12 months or so, double its capabilities. And like with the current language models, you can't inject an image or a video and ask it to learn from it. That's going to change. These things will be able to learn from videos and images and audio and code, and they're going to be able to output uh, that stuff. Like in Google Bard, it will now output an image with the text. So you're seeing the what's called multimodal. You're seeing the early phases of this all these you know multimedia components being baked into a single engine and that's where it's going next as well as being able to take action not just output something be able to go take action like book a trip so if i ask it taking a family of four to italy um here's the city i'm staying in what should we do and it comes back and it says oh here's the five main attractions and here's the best family friendly things and then i say okay go book this for me that's where we're going next is it'll actually be able to do the things once it's created. And so that's all very near term. The tech exists right now. It's being fine-tuned. And so in 2023, you're going to, you're going to start experiencing this outside of just the labs and kind of the people who are out in the frontier testing these tools. When I was in Cincinnati two weeks ago, speaking at that social media show and tell, um, the Matt, Matthew Dooley, who, who ran the event, he said, we should watch this in like six months and see if our presentations are still. I'm like, 
I don't want to watch my presentation again. But <laughs> I could just imagine that what we're like, this is amazing, is going to be so mainstream. And yeah. so, you know, like you said, it's the dumbest version of of everything that's going to be happening. Moving fast. Okay. Number 12, given the rise of privacy concerns with AI tools, what guidelines should companies follow when using AI models like ChatGPT and adjusting content for Q&A? We always advise people they need generative AI uh, policies in the organization that, that shares with their team how to, like what these tools are, how and when to use image generation, language generation, video generation, what they are and are not allowed to do. And I would make that a, a very high priority in every company because people are using these tools, maybe not with approval internally, but where we've seen a lot of people get in trouble is they don't know that you can't put confidential proprietary information into chat GPT. They don't know that that stays with open AI and potentially is part of the training of the next foundational model they release. So you'll have people take a confidential meeting, say, and export the transcript out of Zoom and then drop it into ChatGPT and ask it to do a summary of it or to find action items from it. Well, you just gave confidential information to a third-party company that you have no agreement with. It's going to stay confidential. So I think just education is so critical here to avoid missteps that gets IT and legal upset and hinders your ability to do this stuff moving forward. So as soon as you can possibly get generative AI policies in place and responsible AI principles that you know talk at a higher, more macro level, Here's how we view overall AI and our human-centered approach to it and things like that. But get policies in place as quickly as possible. And policies when it comes to your partners and agencies. Yes, you want those to carry over because, again, if you hire an outside agency or an outside you know, freelance writer or freelance designer or videographer, and they're using AI to generate things and then passing them to you under a work-for-hire agreement, your assumption is you have a copyright to those. And in that instance, you, in fact, don't because you don't own what they created. And I don't think this is, is one of our questions, but do you think the U.S. copyright laws will, will evolve with everything that's been happening? Yeah, I think, well, what are we on? Are we on privacy? Oh, it gets into the next one. You're, yeah, we're on number 13. We're like rolling right into number 13 oh, here. And I am just, wow. <laughs> okay, this is our number 13, our two-part question. How can companies ensure they comply with copyright regulations when generating images with AI? Yep, and then how does how's it evolve? So, U.S. Copyright Office on March 16th, 2023, released updated guidance that said a prompt is not authorship, that a human must author something in order to own a copyright on it. This applies to anything you would apply for a copyright for, including articles, you know, anything you've written, website content, brochures, uh, images you generate, including your logo, if you used AI to generate a logo, videos, audio, code, all of it. So currently... Their guidance is if you submit something and want a copyright to it, and you cannot uh, claim it if AI generated it. And they, they're, they're pretty strict on it at the moment. They don't even give much leeway of, yeah, but I edited it a lot or 20% you know, of it I edited. Then they're basically saying, okay, well, the 20% you edited, you can get a copyright on, but the other 80% you can't. So our assumption is this is going to take years in the legal system. There'll be lots of battles fought over this. It will likely evolve. I think the first thing that would evolve is what level of prompt does equal authorship. I think I could, I could see a scenario where the more extensive the prompt, the more detail given, the more human strategy and creativity that goes into the prompt, that they would listen to an argument that that is in fact a form of authorship. And so I think that's probably the first thing that would evolve. I am not an IP attorney though. I always tell people, talk to your IP attorneys about this. 
And again, if you're using outside agencies, you have to know if they're using AI to generate what they're giving you. So that's the safest bet right now is assume if you use AI to generate something and you publish that, put it out into the world, becomes fixed in the world, you don't own it. So again, the trick here is you can go into mid-journey, create a logo for your startup, and it may be amazing. And you create that logo and you have commercial rights to it under your agreement with mid-journey. But if AI created it, and I know you used AI to do it, I can take it, put it on a baseball hat and start selling it for 20 bucks and you can't do anything about it because you don't actually own the output. Nobody owns it. So it's free reign for me to commercialize it if I want to. So that's where it's just like, you really have to be careful here, especially for higher profile things that you really want to protect with a copyright. But there are some things, you know, we talked about it before, outlines, emails that you don't care if you can't copyright it. Social media shares. Like, yeah, I mean, it, again, the IP attorney may not say that. You and I say that. Um, but yes, there are plenty of use cases that have nothing to do with creating a final output that you put out into the world where AI can be used. That's why we often say, like, I don't think about AI writing, like true writing from scratch, starting writing a draft as even a top 10 use case for me, which is not what I think about. But we use it for transcription, summarization, outlines, ideation, simplification of content, um, putting into specific formats, improving the ability for it to drive outcomes. Like we use it all the time. It has nothing to do with something we couldn't get a copyright on. You know, so it's just knowledge. Like once you know this stuff, it's like, okay, who do I got to go talk to to figure out how, what this means to us? Simplification was one I just heard about when I was down at Kent State a few months ago doing guest lecturing. One of the students said he took a chapter of one of his history books. He's not, he said, I'm not a history buff. It's a requirement required course. Put it in uh, GPT-4. And he said, can you summarize this for me at um, seventh grade level or something? Yeah. yeah. And he was like, it was great. Yeah, it does. It's, and it's, it's, great it's incredible at it. Yeah. Um, do you answer both those? How do you envision the evolution of copyright legislation in the context of large language model AI? Yeah, I think, like I said, I think it's going to evolve. I, I think there will be a little bit, um, other things that become more lenient, I guess, in terms of what, what is authorship and the significance of the prompt itself, you know, the output. So if I say, write me a 500 word article about language models and it writes it and I publish it, no way, not, not getting a copyright for it. And they're not going to change that law. I don't think. If I say, write me an article about large language models, consider the implications on the healthcare industry, uh, look into how, you know, the threats and opportunities for larger enterprises, consider this from the perspective of a brief that's going to be supplied to the CEO, and then it does it. And then I go on and say, okay, now can you make these more concise? Can you condense this into 10 bullet points? Can you, like that to me is way closer to authorship than, you know, me just asking seven word prompt, write this thing. Right. Um, and I think, you know, maybe there is some precedent here. Again, I haven't really thought this through. And again, I'm not an IP attorney, but some precedent in ghostwriting. Like, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. Most books you see written by executives, not ours. I actually wrote my book. But <laughs> if most books written by CEOs aren't written by the CEOs, they have ghostwriters, whether they acknowledge them or not. There is someone who interviews the CEO, reads everything the CEO has written, said, whatever, all the interviews. And synthesizes that into a book that the CEO hopefully reads or someone on the CEO's team reads and approves. And then you publish and you have a New York Times bestseller by a CEO who never wrote a word of it, but they own the copyright to it. So I, I think, again, if I put my legal hat on of I've spent a bunch of money with IP attorneys through the years and learned a few things, 
I could certainly see the argument of we have ghostwriting and the CEO owns the copyright. So how is this different? So I, I've always said like the home run career for the next 10 years is being an IP attorney. Like there's, there's going to be no lack of work to do in the generative AI space for IP attorneys for the next decade. Right. Okay. Let's get into the weeds a little bit on this one. Number Last two. We're almost there. <laughs> if you, if I want to get started today, what are some steps marketers or anybody can take immediately to learn or identify ways to get started? The two things we always teach, there's a whole chapter of the marketing artificial intelligence book dedicated to this. We have online courses dedicated to this. We teach two frameworks. The first is problem-based. I think of this as the director level and above approach, the leadership approach. You look at problems in the organization, whether it's related to acquisition, churn, audience growth, profitability, efficiency, whatever the, 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 the standard problem you're trying to solve or challenge or the goal you're trying to solve, you look at those and say, is there a smarter way to solve this? And you go through an analysis that says, here's the tech we're using, here's the people we're using, here's how we're doing this. If we take kind of a first principles, of principles approach to this and say, let's start from the ground up and forget everything we know and say, how could we solve this in a more intelligent way? That's the problem-based model. It can take months to do it. Oftentimes, these are 100,000 or multi-million dollar solutions you're looking for, things that will create and unlock value in the organization. So a lot of people are involved. That's the, it's important, but that's kind of the longer play. The one you can go do after this episode ends is the use case model. That's make a list of all the things you do. If you're Kathy, make a list, sit down, look, think through the last week and say, what are all the things I did tactically and put an hour number next to how much time you spent on each of them. Extrapolate it out over a month and say, wow, I'm spending 20 hours a month producing the podcast. Can I find AI to, to do 10 hours of that work? And so you just go through your list of the things you're doing and say, can I go find a tool to help me save time here? And then you just force rank these in terms of which ones have the greatest value to you if AI can assist you. And then you look at how much time can be saved and you start picking off individual use cases. You want these things to be very narrow, narrow in scope, so very clearly defined, and you want to have a high probability of them creating value for them working. And then you start stacking those successes. And then you take those to your leadership and say, listen, last three months, we got AI tool for podcasting that saved us you know, 12% of our time. We got an AI writing tool that saved us 25% of our time. And we got an ad management tool that increased the return on ad spend uh, 40%. We would love for next year, 2024, to have budget to start really exploring what we can do with AI. So that's kind of the two ways I think about it. I'm used to being an intro where I can drop in that link in the chat and we're yeah. not you know, doing that right. <laughs> we'll but drop it in the show notes. We'll drop it in the show notes, but marketingaibook.com, buy the book if you haven't already. And about halfway down that page, there is uh, there are links to the, the spreadsheet. The templates, yeah, for that. Templates. Yep. And lastly, this is a good note to end on. As we move toward an increase an increasingly AI-driven world, what are your thoughts on the future role of humans and what advice would you give those who might feel threatened by the rise of AI? I, I think about the threatened part a lot. I talk to a lot of people who are worried, who are fearful, who want to just not have AI be able to do what it's doing. They don't want it to be able to write or to do artwork. And I get that. I sympathize with that. I feel it myself a lot of times as a writer, as a husband of an artist, as the father of an artist. Like I feel that. Like I, I get it a lot. Um, I think that we basically 
have a choice. We can accept that AI is here and it's going to be ever present in our lives, or we can ignore it. <laughs> uh, I don't see ignoring it being a real option for professionals. I, I think that the best advice I can give is to embrace the technology, to figure out what it means to you, to figure out when and how it's going to impact your career, and to just be proactive in trying to solve this. The, re the reality is that most organizations have no idea what to do about this. So I think there's unparalleled opportunities in your career to raise your hand and be part of the solution to say, listen, I'm, I'm really interested in this space. I've become curious about it. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm demoing these technologies. I would love to help be the one to figure out what to do about this on our team, in our company. Um, so I think there's opportunities for people at all levels to emerge as real change agents within the organizations. And honestly, to figure out what the next career paths are. Like if you ask me point blank, what are five new career paths based on AI three years from now, I would really struggle to envision what those roles are going to be. I could probably come up with a couple, but I think that more often than not, it's going to be you, the listener who embraces AI, thinks about what you do, thinks about the context of the organization, the industry you do it in, and says, you know what I think is needed is this. Like, I'll give you one example. I think I've told this story before on the show, but a couple of years ago, I did this talk for a healthcare organization for public affairs officers, like 150 public affairs people. And after the talk, a lady came up to me and she said, is AI ops a thing? Like, is there, is that a role that exists? And I said, not that I'm aware of, like, what are you thinking? And she said, well, we're in healthcare. This is going to be disruptive in many ways. There's no one that's thinking about that right now. And that is actually figuring out how to build the infrastructure, how to evolve the team, how to evolve our tech stack. I think there's an opportunity for me in my career, she was in her early twenties to be like an AI ops leader. And I was like, do it. Like, that's beautiful. And I think that's where we're at. We're entering this phase where people who push forward and learn this stuff and try to apply it, they're going to identify their own career paths. And then the leaders, like the CMOs who you know really latch on to this, they're going to be thinking about what does a next-gen marketer look like in my organization and what roles am I going to need here? And so I'm, I think that's exciting. Like as much as I do fear disruption to knowledge workers and the potential for job loss as a result of this. I like to focus more on the positive aspects and the ideas that lots of new careers and opportunities are going to emerge and people, you know, potentially early in their career, even later in their career, if they're listening and paying attention to be able to really kind of redefine their own career path and the value they create in their organization. I think even in November, you know, early December, when ChatGPT came out, everyone's like, oh, prompt engineering is going to be a huge thing. That's going to be, prompt engineer is going to be a role. And don't you feel like we're all going to be prompt engineers? Or is that yeah, I think it's just a skill. I don't think it's a role. I've, I've said that publicly before. I, I do think like as we do interviews for the hiring we're making, we're, you know, we're planning to make a couple of marketing hires. That's one of the questions you start weaving in is, you know, talk to us about how you would give a prompt to GPT-4 for this. So I, I just feel like whether you're doing email or a podcast or building a, a plan, that's going to be a required skill to like how you know, if I gave someone a strategy, so I think about, again, like all the people I hired and developed at my agency, how much time you spent teaching strategy. I always said strategy was by far the hardest thing to teach someone. You could look early in someone's career and say, I think they have potential. They're a critical thinker. They connect the dots. They see things other people don't see, but it would take years to develop a great strategist. I really feel like AI can advance that so rapidly. Because you can just say, listen, here's the problem we need to solve. Here's the project brief. I want you to start by developing a prompt to give GPT-4. And we're going to talk through that prompt. Then we're going to give it to GPT-4. We're going to see the output. And then we're going to fine tune that prompt. 
I think that that's a way that AI can really accelerate the development of people from a strategic and critical thinking side if it's done right. But it is absolutely just going to be a skill set that's required of every marketer moving forward. Absolutely. Any final words? Oh boy, that was 15 a lot. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, I hope like we, again, we thought like we get hundreds of these questions. Um, I hope this was as valuable to you. You know, I know the questions and answer for you and me, Kathy, at the end of the intro is always our favorite part of doing that every time, because we do get incredible questions and some of them are just so in-depth, we can't go into them all, you know, in that short time span. So I don't know. I mean, maybe like, again, if people like this, like reach out on LinkedIn, let Kathy and I know, you know, leave a comment um, if this was helpful to you, because it might be something that we do more regularly, like, you know, once a quarter or something, just make sure we pop in and address some of these things and then send them off to people who've done these intro classes. So yeah, hopefully this was really helpful for you. We appreciate it, Kathy. Thanks as always for not only co-hosting today, you know, um, pitching in here, but also moderating all of these intros and, um, you know, helping guide see this my community. Way. I love, I love our community. Yeah. And if, uh, again, if you're on the, if you're not in the Slack community, Kathy runs that as well. We have, I think we're approaching 3000 people in the free Slack community. So you can join that on our website as well. And Kathy's very active there, more active than I am. I try and be active in there, but it's not your job. So you should, I know. Um, so, so yeah. I'll leave, I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes to a lot of things we discussed today. And I hope you found it valuable. All right. Thanks. We will um, we will be back next week with your regularly scheduled weekly where Mike and I were going to be catching up from three weeks of not having given you the headlines. So we may have a super episode for you next week with all the headlines that we missed in early June. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk with you again soon. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.